Welcome to the High Impact Man podcast. High impact men from across the nation sharing their stories of inspiration, encouragement, and hope to help others become the virtuous leaders they are called to be and that our nation desperately needs. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the High Impact Man podcast. I can tell you uh, that we've been having a lot of fun doing this, and it's been great to meet our guests that have come on and told their stories. Uh, I think everyone's in for a, a treat on this pot, podcast, uh, this episode, because we have a really good guest on tonight, and, uh, well, you're going to hear all about it. Um, my, I'm the host, Nevin Gorky, um, known as D-Fib in the, in the gloom to my F3 brothers. I'm joined by my co-host, Troy Klinger, otherwise known as Dial-Up by his F3 brothers. Dial up, you looking forward to this one? I am definitely looking forward to this one. This is, uh, I think this will be a special one for sure. Yeah, I think so. So, um, without further ado, we're just going to get into introducing our guest. Uh, our guest is Ralph Jodas. He's known as Red Baron in the gloom to his F3 brothers. And I'm going to read his bio here. He sent me this bio, and it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. A lot of you guys out there are listening. Well, we hope there's a lot of guys listening. Anyway... Um, most of you will probably be familiar with Red Baron and some of his accomplishments, but, uh, but I'd like to read it because I don't think all of you know all this stuff. So anyway, this is uh, retired Lieutenant General Ralph Jodas, retired from the United States Air Force on 1st of July 2013 after 36 and a half years of service. Well, that alone is impressive, but this goes on. General Jodas is a prior senior mentor for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO, from 2015 through 2020. He was one of 13 retired generals and admirals from eight different countries who advised senior NATO commanders and their staffs for high-level exercises and specific training events. He frequently speaks about his experiences as an air component commander at professional military education courses both in person and virtually. He's also a past president and was the lane chair of the board of director of the Rotary Club at Hanover, Pennsylvania. He is currently the junior achievement and charitable fund chair for the Hanover Rotary Club. He is a member of F3 Snacktown. Serves on the board of directors for F3, which stands for Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith. And as I said, he's known in the gloom as Red Baron. He is a past president and member of the board of directors for the Phi Alpha Chi Alumni Association. To get a little bit more into his uh, military career, General Jodas flew over 3,500 flight hours in the F-111AE. I hope I'm getting these right. The F-15E, the T-38B, and the UHIN. He served in multiple assignments in the U.S., England, South Korea, China, and Turkey. He commanded the 335th Fighter Squadron, the 4th Operations Group, the 80th Flying Training Wing Home of the Euro-NATO Joint uh, Jet Pilot <coughs> Training Program, the Air Force District of Washington, D.C., NATO's Allied Air Command in Izmir, Turkey, and the Combined Forces Air Component for NATO's Operation Unified Protector. He was on the Joint Staff, J-33, as a European Command Division Chief. He was a defense attache in Beijing, China, and was a deputy undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs. He holds a bachelor and a master's degree in aerospace engineering and a master's degree in national strategic studies from the National War College. He is a graduate of the Squadron Officers School, Marine Corps Command and Staff College, and the Air War College. His military awards include the Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Legion of Merit, the NATO Medal, and the French Legion of Honor Medal. He and his wife, Judy, moved to Hanover in February 2014. They have three sons, all who are married, and all three are part of F3. Hello Kitty is known to a lot of people. He's an F3 Carpex. Atari is an F3 Seattle. And Lightyear is an F3 The Capital. He and his M have seven grandchildren, 
which I know he spends a lot of time with. They routinely uh, volunteer for Roots of Boots, Roots for Boots, a local grassroots military veteran nonprofit support organization. They're delivering food monthly to local veterans. Ralph and Judy are often seen on their tandem bicycle cycling on the back roads in their local area. Well, there's just a little bit to talk about there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where, where we're going to start. Let's what, see. What size of memory card do you have plugged in for recording this one? Because we might need a bigger one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Red Baron, welcome to our podcast. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we usually ask guys who EH them, how they got an F3, and how they got their nickname. I have a feeling I know how you got your nickname, but uh, tell us a little bit how you got involved with F3 and who EH'd you. I think I know the answer to this, but go ahead. Yeah, well, hey, thanks, uh, DFib and Dial-Up and the Spielberg in the background for having me on uh, this evening. This is really, truly an honor and a privilege. So uh, back in 2017, we were uh, down in uh, by the Raleigh area in Cary, where Hello Kitty lives. And he had been in F3 for some period of time, six, eight months or so. And uh, he had been talking to me about it and so forth and so on. And I've been working out and that kind of thing. And uh, and so it was actually an F3 dad. So I like to say I got EH by a six-year-old mm. who was um, uh, our, our actually our 3.0, our first uh, grandchild, um, and Ellie. And she was six. And uh, so we actually, uh, we had a, a men's beat down and then went and did, of course, an F3 dad's beat down. And so that was uh, 22 October of 2017. And of course, when I started telling the, the packs about my background and experience, well, uh, pretty early, somebody said, you know, Snoopy and the Red Baron, Red Baron. And I'm like, ooh, I kind of like that one. But I've been through nicknaming ceremonies before. <laughs> and I know Don't that if say you, you say like, you like something, uh, well, guess what? You're not going to get that. Yeah. Right. So I kept my mouth shut and, uh, and it stuck. So. Yeah, that's excellent. I, you know, that's great. I don't, I don't know anybody else who's been eh by their grandchild. So I, you might be alone in that. That's very cool. So, but yeah. I want, I want to tell our listeners though, real quick, is because we're hoping to reach an audience that's even more than just F three guys. We, we, so we try to explain it every uh, episode. F three stands for Fitness Fellowship and Faith. It's uh, started as a nat- national. Now it's more of a worldwide movement um, network of men. Uh, the with the goal of invigorating male community leadership. So basically, we have free outdoor boot camp style workouts for guys where we come together and uh, the fellowship is amazing. And uh, the, the faith part is what really uh, is the dynamite that we call it, where we start doing things for our community, becoming better husbands, becoming better fathers, etc. So that's the goal of F3. And that's what we're talking about. So um, Red Baron, we're going to go back a little bit further because I'd like to know, I always ask every guest this, where did you grow up and what was that like? So I grew up in Northeast New Jersey, the most Northeastern County in New Jersey in a little town called New Milford, which was founded way, way, way back uh, in the early 1700s. It was one of the first towns on the, on the Northeast coast. And uh, I, uh, I grew up there. My dad was a police officer, had started as a, as a cop, 1949, so after World War II, and he had been enlisted in World War II in the Navy, and then uh, grew grew up there, uh, spent all my childhood years there, uh, and until I went off went off to college. And uh, my aunt Judy is also from 
the town right next door uh, called Oradell, uh, which was about four miles away. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, Dial-Up, I think we, we heard about, I might be wrong, but I think we heard about Red Baron's father as a sharpshooter from a submarine. Is that right? <laughs> we, we did, yeah. Maybe a, a mammal that was... Uh destroyed <laughs> you guys must have got you must have got some intel from somebody else you guys obviously did some prep work you're right he was he was a sonar man on a destroyer and during a some uh, in the south pacific he was in the south pacific for about three years and uh one time they had a contact they couldn't couldn't figure out what it is so they lay down they're thinking it's a japanese sub they lay down some depth charges and a few minutes later there's whale blubber kind of floating <laughs> to the surface so um, that's why, you know, that, that's why we say my, my, I have a brother, uh, a blood brother, right? He's almost seven years younger than me. He's a no kidding wildlife biologist. He does seabirds, but we think that's why he went in that. He had, a, he had a, you know, make up for that loss, you know, for what my, uh, my dad did there as a, as a sonar man on a destroyer. Yeah. Making things right between the Jodas family and nature, I guess. And, and yeah, maybe that's yeah, why you went, yeah. maybe that's why you went up into the air. There's like not many creatures you could shoot up in the air right <laughs> well but um we're gonna jump ahead and this is a story for another whole podcast in uh august the 9th 1984 we'll find the f-111 up in northern scotland i wind up hitting a four pound gull and had to eject out of the airplane so Ooh. so we both have had we both have had our run-ins with uh i've had my run-ins with you know select wildlife too Ooh. wow how many times have you had to eject uh, once, uh, and there, I will tell you this: that I don't know the percentage, but it's probably in the very low single digits, if not even a point decimal digit of percentage of people that have had to eject out of an airplane. Yeah. Well, then you're unique in that, or almost unique in that. Wow, that's yeah. that's interesting. I would have suspected it was it would be more. I don't know why, but that's interesting. I've heard of things like that. I worked with a surgeon years ago. He was he, he's fond of, was fond of telling everybody he was a uh, a top gun pilot in the Navy and he served in Vietnam. I think he, he flew uh, an A-10. I can't remember. But anyway, um, he was talking about some training missions over in California where somebody like, you know, dropped something to fall off the airplane and land somewhere. And, you know, you wonder how many accidents actually happened. <laughs> we won't get into that. But that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So tell us how you, uh, how you, how did you decide on a military career? So uh, when I was going through grammar school, I finished eighth grade in 1969. And so uh, I do some talks. I do every year. I, I'll talk with grammar school students, you know, and high school students with regards that are interested in, uh, you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, math type stuff. And I always ask them, so what, what was a big major advance that happened in the 60s? And of course, many say the Vietnam War, but no, it wasn't that. Obviously, our space program was huge. Right? right. We started out with Mercury and then Gemini and then Apollo. And of course, Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon in July of 1969. So I'm growing up watching all that take place and v very interested in it and thinking, well, that looks pretty cool. Of course, then you go into high school and the teachers and guidance counselors start asking you, what are you interested in? I'm like, well, that Neil Armstrong guy, that was pretty cool. You know, all those astronauts, <laughs> I'd love to go right. do that. And they're like, well, you've got to have some kind of a degree in either an engineering or a math or a science. And I'm like, well, that's good because I can't spell worth a darn. My vocabulary pretty much stinks. And I like math and science. And, uh, and they said, you know, you got to be a military pilot. I'm like, 
okay, I can, I can do that. I'll figure out how to make that happen. And so in my high school, we had Navy Junior ROTC. And for those who don't know, ROTC is a Reserve Officer Training Corps, which we have in colleges and universities, but we have junior ROTC programs and some of our high schools around the country. And so uh, one of the guys who I was in there with, his brother was at the Naval Academy going to school for aerospace engineering, was wanted to be a Navy pilot. And I'm like, I, I'll go do that. I'll go that route. And, you know, my dad had been, like I said, had been in the Navy, enlisted in World War II. And so um, anyway, so that's how I, I became interested in all that. Um, now, I didn't, I didn't have the SAT scores and I didn't have the grade point average to to even be considered for any type of service academy. That just wasn't going to happen. Um, it makes C pluses for guys like me and I'm not making that up. I mean, it's just the way it is and the way it was. Um, and so, uh, one of the guidance counselors, not even my own guidance counselor, because my own guidance counselor did not have a lot of faith, trust, and confidence that I was going to be able to get a degree in engineering. And he told me that. Um, but another guidance counselor overheard that and he said, Hey, Ralph, come here. Let me talk to you. He says, I know of this small school that's part of St. Louis University. It's called Parks College of, now it's called Parks College of Engineering, Aviation, and Technology. He says they got an aerospace engineering program. They got Air Force ROTC. He says, I think you can get in there. He says, you should apply. Hmm. And I did, and I applied. Uh, and I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but when I started college in 73, of course, the Vietnam War had just ended. It was ending. And then in 74, the Air Force deleted almost two-thirds to three-quarters of the pilot training slots that they had for ROTC. So the writing was on the wall that uh, I was to get, a pilot, to get a pilot training slot, you were going to have to be a distinguished graduate, so like the number one graduate in your ROTC class. And again, my academics were never going to take me there. And then the ROTC detachment offered me a scholarship for engineering, which meant yeah, if I took that, I had to come on active duty as an engineer, but then I could apply for pilot training at a later time. So bottom line, that's all what happened. Um, and so um, I kind of went a bit of this, you know, backdoor route. In fact, I remember my dad telling me at one point, he said, you know, when things weren't necessarily going the right, not the right way, but going in a way that I had thought I wanted them to go. He said to me, he says, sometimes you got to go around to the back door. He says, you got to knock just even a little bit harder. Um, and so that's what we did. Wow. That's a good uh, story of perseverance and, and persistence, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so after about two years on active duty as a Lieutenant working as an engineer, I did engine structural durability stuff. So why stuff broken jet engines? Uh, I was at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And after about two years of accumulating what we called, at that time, OERs, officer evaluation reports. I then started applying to pilot training and sure enough, about a year and a half later, I was accepted and I went to pilot training. Um, and when I got there a week later, I was promoted to captain. So um, I wasn't the senior guy in my class. It turned out there were four of us and all four of us had very similar stories um, and such. And so anyway, and then I went to pilot training. Well, that's cool. Now, did that experience uh, doing what you did initially? as an engineer and taking care of engines and stuff, did that help you down the road as you not only flew uh, the jets, but became, you know, in your leadership position and stuff like that, you can relate to those guys. Did that help? It, it definitely helped. It helped in multiple ways. First, 
uh, Judy and I, uh, Liam and I were married one year after I was on active duty, but we had been dating since we were 15. We met when we were in between our, after our freshman year of high school. And, uh, but I wanted to be on active duty for a year. So by the time I went to power training, so we had been married for three years, had been together for almost seven years before that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we had this pretty well-formed relationship. Uh, when we went to pilot training, you know, she was pregnant with hello kitty who we didn't know was going to be hello kitty at the time, but she's <laughs> pregnant with Brian. Right. Um, and, it helped me one that I was four years older and I was more mature. I wasn't, I don't think I was an immature guy, but I, I was more mature. Um, it also helped that I like the other captains that were in our, in our class understood not a lot, but sort of how the day-to-day -day functions of the air force went. And, you know, how, how do I sign up for, for leave? How do I do this? And, and many of them, the brand new lieutenants were either fresh out of ROTC or fresh out of officer training school. Some of them were just newly married and they're trying to figure all this stuff out in pilot training, which is one of the toughest, if not the toughest program I've been through in my life. Yeah. And, and so those things helped. Uh, I, yeah, I understood the dynamics of engineering. I was able to get my master's degree in those four years. So, and that, and I, part of the reason, and, and it wasn't me that initiated that it was one of my good friends who was also lost down on a pilot training slot, but was doing engineering work said, what do we do if we don't get into pilot training? What's our backup plan for the air force? And we talked about it and we said, well, let's go get a master's degree. Mm -hmm. He says, university of Dayton's got a good program. Let's go check it out. And that's what we did. Did you ever follow the pathway of, of pursuing, um, NASA and being involved there? I, I, I did. I basically, because I didn't go to pilot training till I was four years older. And by the time I, I had the required number of flight hours uh, to be an astronaut, at least in the air force, the, the standard route is you've got to be a test pilot. Um, and so for those that are, that, that fly the, the spaceships and the aircraft. And so, I basically had one, t one opportunity to apply for test pilot school by the time I hit the required number of hours. And then I was up against the age limit and I probably could have gotten an age waiver. Um, and the squadron commander I had at the time said, Ralph, I won't tell you not to apply. He said, go ahead and apply. He said, but you can do so much more. And you know, by that point, this is the early eighties, the space shuttle program was just getting started and that kind of thing. And I did, I applied and normally to get into test pilot school, it's a multiple times you have to apply, um, over, you know, a couple year period. And, and I didn't get in and I didn't ever apply again. And because I was, I was very happy where I was at and happy with what I'm doing, what I was doing. And I realized, okay, I'm not going to be an astronaut, but I'm getting to do some pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to be around some really cool people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's an amazing experience. You mentioned your uh, pilot training. Can you tell us what that was like? Uh, it was hard. <laughs> um, I mean, pilot training in the United States Air Force and in, and the Navy and the Marine Corps and in the Army is basically about a year long. You start out with uh, some um, academics uh, and things, and then you get into simulators. 
and then you start flying. And so we have a primary uh, flight training, which lasts about five and a half ish months. And then the uh, advanced training, the second phase, which lasts about another five and a half to six months, all total about a year. And so you start out in a little bit more of a simpler aircraft, learning the basic skills and, and in pilot training, the first thing you learn is how to fly the airplane, how to land it, how to do acrobatics. Then you get into instrumentation, you do formation flying. Uh, and, uh, and that happens in both phases. And then of course, as you get into the advanced phase, depending on how you do in the initial phase, depends on which way you track. So in the air force, if you track to, to, to the fighter phase, then you're going to fly. Um, now it's still a T-38. If you track to a tanker or a transport, so an air to air refueling or a cargo airplane, you go into what's called a, a T-1 where you learn more crew concept kind of things as opposed to learning more formation flying and, and that kind of thing. And so, I mean, every day you're being graded in one way, shape or form, whether it's in a classroom environment, an academic test, a simulator, every flight, you're graded not just on the flight overall, but in all the individual maneuvers. You do a general knowledge quiz with the instructor at the end. You do an emergency procedure quiz at the end. Once a week, you have to stand, you have to write what we call the bold face, which is the, the seven or eight emergency procedures that you have to know stone cold. When you write it, you, you can't miss a period, a comma, a, des, a, a dash, nothing. Wow. If you do, you flunk and you never flunk a bold face test. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a pretty intense, but you also build some incredible bonds with your instructors and then the other students in your class um, because in the military, it doesn't make any difference with Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, that camaraderie in a unit is so important. It's the fellowship that we have in F3. Yeah, right. It's so important. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really cool because, um, you know, that's what a lot of guys are missing in our country today and in our society. They don't have those close male friendships, as we all know. And that's one of the things that F3 can cure. You know, we, they call it the sad clown syndrome. Um, and a lot of guys walking around like that. And, uh, and every, every guest we have on mentions the fellowship. If they're part of F3, yeah. um, mentions how, well, and, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you guys, this was, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we were back down in North Carolina. Uh, Kitty and the family had moved into a, a house that they bought. This would have been the uh, fall of 19. They moved into the house in summer 19. So my two, uh, granddaughters down there, they go, granddad, you need to come down. You've built a bar. You need to build us a playhouse out in the backyard. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll figure it out. So I get, I buy, I found some plan online. Hello Kitty, uh, gets, uh, uh, one of the F3 guys down there, F3 Parker, who just happens to be the Carpex Nantan right now. He's a huge tool guy. He does construction work. So he's got, Parker's like, I'll bring over all the tools. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so two weeks later, after numerous cost overruns and uh, delays, <laughs> you know, and the standard construction schedule, I finally finished it. And I think I'm at the last posting before we're going home. And it's a weekday morning, 530, no kidding, dark, in the gloom. It's not raining, but, and I've been around these guys. And the mumble chatter is just, it's huge. Everybody's just talking, but it's all good talk, right? Mm -hmm. And we get done and we get into the circle of trust. And uh, they go, you know, we do all the standard stuff and they go around who has some praises. And I go, I got one. I said, I realized today 
that the what I you know many people ask me what do you do you miss the flying from being in the Air Force? And I said, yeah, you know, it was great. I loved it while I did it. And I don't fly on my own today for a few different reasons. But I said, it was great. I said, and, and that morning I told those guys that. And I said, but what I realized I was really missing was this, this camaraderie of being in a unit and the fellowship. And I, and I, now I know I found it here in F3. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it, and I told those guys that again, just a couple of weeks ago, we were there um, helping out with the 3.0s and, and the same thing. And cause there's a bunch of different packs. And so anyway, uh, that camaraderie and that cohesion that comes of being in a unit that I experienced, even when I was a Lieutenant general running a 340 person or an 8,000 person combat operation, um, you still have that, you have a mission focus. I talk about focus on the mission, positive can-do attitude, and working together as a team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had that no matter what level I was at. And we have that in F3. We have the mission focus in very great male community leadership. Mm-hmm. We've got high-impact men, right, all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we know that we can't get through anything whether it's a beatdown, whether it's a fellowship event, whether it's a Q source, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a, a community service event without the rest of the packs around us picking up our six. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I, you know, we, I, I didn't serve in the military. I, did, I went through arm, army basic training in the early eight, mid mid eighties, but uh, I didn't, it was for national guard and not, not to downplay that service, but I didn't, you know, have a big military career, but, uh, but what I liken it to is being on a sports team. We've talked about this before, yeah. you know, guys, you go into school, whether it's high school call or, or and college or whatever, but you know, being part of a, a team that's fighting hard together, training hard together and stuff like that. And, uh, and then you get out of school and it's like, Whoa, what do I do now? I don't have that anymore. So the guys that you, uh, grew close to now, you've had a 36 and a half year career. So it's probably a lot of them, but do you, do you maintain those close relationships from the military we actually, I, I can point at, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can say this. I'm, I'm very confident I can say this. I can point to every assignment and we have contacts with, pretty much, with everybody from every assignment. Just last fall in October, we had about 15 or 16 of us from my pilot training class that got together in L.A., LA is lower Alabama. Okay, for, <laughs> just in case you didn't know that. No, I didn't. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, down there, down there on the, on the golf, co- on the golf coast, uh, orange beach or something like that. It's uh, just right next to the Florida border. It's a be- The beaches down there are gorgeous. It's yeah. gorgeous. And, uh, we were there with our, uh, spouses. Um, and, so yeah, um, we are in contact with people f- throughout our entire Air Force career, including those we were in China with from multiple countries, uh, those who we were in Turkey with, from multiple countries, um, and uh, and other even and other civilians that we became friends with, you know, from the local areas. So it's we almost can't go anywhere without saying, "Well, we gotta we gotta find so and so, you know, we gotta check in with so and so and see how they're doing." Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you probably you have people all over the country that uh, you have connections with and can stop in almost any town you're visiting, right? 
Yeah, all over the country, all over the world. You know, yeah. the attaches that I was in Beijing with in China in 2004 to seven, um, we have a, a group of probably about 30 of us that the last two years, unfortunately, it didn't happen, but would get together on a little mini reunion in different, in different countries. Uh, mostly it was focused in Europe because the, uh, the, the Austrian was the guy who started it, but um, we, we've, we've done that. So, Yeah, so let's yeah. see. So you started your service. When did you start flying? It was in the late 70s or early 80s? I, I graduated from college in 76. I started active duty in January 77, and I started flying in January of 81 in pilot training. All right, so that takes you, you're right in kind of, I don't want to say the middle, I guess, but in the height of the Cold War. Um, and then, you know, 36 years later, you've gone through the fall of, uh, supposedly the fall of the Iron Curtain and the breakup of the Soviet Union. And then we go to the first Persian Gulf War and then uh, the second one and, you know, all that. So you've been through a lot of this stuff. You were still in service when 9-11 occurred, correct? Yes. In fact, I was the wing commander of the NATO pilot training program, that Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training program that you mentioned in my bio um, out there in Wichita Falls, Texas. Yeah, I had just taken command in July of 2001. And then, of course, 9-11 was in September. What was that day like? Uh, that day, it, it turned out I was not on the base. I was at a commander's conference uh, so with my next level of command, uh, with commanders uh, that were underneath this uh, a, a two-star major general down in San Antonio, Texas. And I remember, you know, we we're in the, the first session of the morning with him and all of us commanders around, you know, the conference room. And, you know, his aide, aide de camp comes in or exec and, you know, whispers in his ear, sees you know, we kind of, okay. About two minutes later, a person comes back in, hands him a note, and he goes, okay, guys, time out. We're going to call up uh, CNN or whatever on the big screen. Uh, we got a situation going on in, in New York City. Um, and then, of course, you know, we, we are all watching. By that time, both airplanes had hit the towers and everything else. And then his, his next thing was, okay, he says, guys, we're calling a knock it off, which in the flying term means we're not, we're stopping this thing. Uh, get on the phone, call back to your bases, find out what's going on. Cause some of the commanders, not only uh, they, they commanded the entire base. In my case, we were a tenant wing in, uh, and so I did not run the base. I ran the pilot training wing. I did not report to the other wing commander. The other wing commander ran the entire base and, and that, and that wing had responsibility has responsibility for a lot of the technical training for um, a lot of our enlisted folks when they first come out of basic training. And he says, you know, figure out what's going on. So that, that then, then uh, all that stuff started to happen. So um, did you, were you flying uh, fighters in the, uh, the first Persian Gulf war? Uh, when uh, when Desert Storm occurred in January 1991, I had just become qualified or I just finished training to learn how to fly the F-15E. So I was, technically I wasn't mission ready in the airplane. Um, and so I was at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. We were standing up the third operational squadron for the F-15E. It was a brand new airplane at the time. 
when I got there in uh, December, the one squadron, the 336 fighter squadron was already over at Desert Shield. The 335th fighter squadron was going to deploy right after Christmas. And then we were standing up the 334th fighter squadron. So, uh, no, I, I didn't fly in Desert Storm. We did go over in June of after Desert Storm to basically stand up what eventually became known as Southern Watch, the enforcement of the no-fly zone, mm-hmm. um, and flying out of uh, Dahran, at that time, Dahran Air Base in Saudi Arabia. Did you ever shoot anybody down? <laughs> no. I have combat time because I deployed twice um, in a combat zone, either over uh, Kuwait or Iraq, enforcing a no-fly zone. I never had to shoot at anybody. I never had to drop a bomb at anybody. Nobody ever shot at me or anything like that. And because of other positions that I held at the time for uh, Persian Gulf two and then Iraq and Afghanistan, I never flew in any of those uh, spots. Um, you know, after the last time that I was in that deployed uh, zone was, con- uh, was operation Southern watch was in late 1995. Okay. Well, Dalip, do you have any questions before we get to NATO? Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to ask, you know, so this time you you have kids by this point, right? Or have all three boys been born? Yeah, so uh, again, uh, Hello Kitty, uh, number one, he was born during pilot training. Um, Atari, Hello Kitty, that's Brian. Atari, number two, who's uh, Ralph Jr., he was born when we got uh, over to England. We got there in uh, October of 82. He was born in February of 83. And then uh, Lightyear, who's Adam, um, he was born in 85 after we came back from the UK and I was an instructor pilot at one of our, at our pilot training base in Columbus, Mississippi. Yeah. So, I mean, you had a, obviously a lot going on with all of your training and then, uh, you know, the, the, the missions and, and where you were serving. What, what was, um, secret's not the best word, but like what, what, what was your, uh, I'll say secret. What was your secret to maintaining that right mix of uh, your, your profession, your career in the military, but also being that, that, that father, um, you know, in your off hours when you were, when you're home with the family. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a few things. One, I watched my dad sort of balance that when he was a cop for a large number of years until he became I think the lieutenant or a captain and eventually became the chief of police of our department, which was a merit position. It wasn't a elected position. Uh, you know, he worked shift work. And I remember many a time, you know, I remember many, some Christmas mornings, uh, dad'll be home soon. You can't open presents till he comes home. Right. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to be able to get away. Uh, you know, as each cop took their turn, um, but I always saw him put the family first or, or pretty far up. And then I was a captain somewhere along the lines and some crusty, what we would call a crusty old Colonel who is way younger then than I am now. Right. Uh, stood up in front of a whole group of fighter pilots and fighter whizzos and said the priorities in his life, had always been or, or is his faith, his family, and his job. And he said, the Air Force or any place 
will try to make you put the job first. Mm. And he says, and there are times when we're going to, we're going to require you to put the job first. He says, but you're going to have to figure out how to put those priorities back in order. And, and I use the term, you know, those you're going to have, and I, then I, I took that on and I kind of maintained that, you know, my faith, my family and my job and knew that at time those things were going to get out of whack, but I had to figure out how to put them back in whack. You know, that's my, that's a, that's a red baron term, you know, figure out how to put them back in order knowing darn well that they're going to, they're just going to get stretched. And when I was the air component commander for the NATO Libya operation in 2011, it completely was the job first for three months, the first three months. Um, And I, and, and finally I had to figure out how do I get this back in the order that I needed to be in. All right. And we know in F3, we talk about faith, believing in something greater than yourself. And for some, you know, it's, it's your, it's your personal religions and, and, but however you define that high moral values, it doesn't make any difference. And so I always tried to do that. And I always tried to lead by example. So for example, when I was a squadron commander, I coached my kids soccer team. I helped coach their basketball team. When I was a group commander as a colonel, I coached the basketball team and I told the principal, I'm like, I'm going to miss some things. And they're like, that's okay. You know? And I, I, and and I would tell the schedulers, Hey, I, on Thursday night, I got basketball practice. We're night flying. If, if I can be off the schedule or if I can have a flight early, you know, but there were times when I had to miss those things, but I always tried to, to do those things and put them, put, put things back in that order. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what helped to make a big difference and a family that loved doing what we're doing. My, my am Judy, (laughs) we couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it without her. I mean, she was fabulous. I mean, there were times when I was deployed for three months. I mean, yeah, I might be talking to them every once in a while. And when I was deployed, there's no freaking FaceTime, right? right? There's no Skype, right? There's no texting. There's no email. You're writing letters, mm-hmm. handwriting letters, yeah. right? Um, and of course, she did a she did a fantastic job, and uh, and you will see that in all three of our sons. It's reflected in all three of them. Yeah, you certainly did something right. Absolutely. Well, it, it took it's it took both of us. Yes, absolutely. And 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 both of our parents where they could be to help out when they could. Yeah. I got, I have to ask you about these awards that you had because I looked them up and I, I didn't spend a huge amount of time, but I looked up um, these different uh, military awards. And uh, the one that really stuck out to me was the French Legion of Honor medal. I don't know if I was looking that up correctly because what it said was you had to be a French citizen. And it was the higher, highest award they had in their country. Did I look up the wrong one? Uh, no, you did not. They, they call it the Legion d'Honneur which in French, I guess, means Legion of Honor. But just like in the United States military, we have the Legion of Merit. Um, the, the, uh, the, in my case, the head of the French Air Force, the four-star, he is authorized to give that to someone from a foreign, another country military for what he feels went above and beyond and was 
um, helped was instrumental to his air force. Mm -hmm. And so there there are other um, military men and women, and I don't know who they all are that have received the French Legion d'honneur or, you know, Legion of Merit or Legion of Honor. But uh, General Palomeros, who was the French air chief at the time, gave it to me in May of 12. And it was because of when I commanded the Air Component Command for Operation Unified Protector, which was the mission under the United Nations Security Council resolution to protect civilians in Libya. And of course, the French had a key role in that. Um, and there, my deputy was a French three-star, but uh, General Palomeros was very gracious in giving me that medal. Um, and there's not very many that have that. Yeah, that's what I had found out when I researched it. And I'm sure there's even less outside of France that have it, or, you know, non-French citizens. That was, that's pretty inc- incredible. Thank so, you. Yeah, yeah, congratulations. Uh, that's that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and it's cool that, you know, you got to experience working with, at least I think it's cool that you got to experience working with uh, leaders from other countries and uh, trying to figure out how to make that all work together. So can you tell us about your experience at NATO? Like, how did you, how did you get there and, you know, what was it like? So, you know, when uh, I, my first sort of step in that, in that direction um, was, you know, when, when I was made the wing commander of the NATO pilot training wing, it's a, yes, the U.S. runs the wing. Um, at the time, 50% of the students were Americans and 50% were from not all the other NATO countries, but from about eight other NATO countries. 50% of the instructors were Americans and 50% of the instructors were from um, about eight other countries, but we also had some countries that had an instructor, but no students. Anyway, and then from there, when I was selected for Brigadier General, and then I wound up going to China to be the defense attache, all that was, you, it was because of my, I believe it was my ability to collaborate and form consensus with people. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the ability to listen, take it all in, make an informed decision, and not just say, it's my way or the highway, shut up and color. It's, okay, here's why I'm making this decision. Here's how we're going to go in this direction. Here's how we bring this all together. Here's the importance of the synergistic effects that take place when you work together as a team. And in this case, as an, in the NATO case, as an alliance mm-hmm. where the sum of the parts becomes greater than the whole. So part, part of my ignorance, really, like how, how did you overcome the language barrier in that setting? Well, you know, I always in, have the pictures it, of the yeah, guys in, in NATO in, with the interpreters. In, in and, Na- <laughs> yeah. In, in NATO, um, English and French are the two quote languages, okay. common languages, but, but it's English is the main language that everybody uses. Now, some people, you have to have certain language skills to be in a NATO assignment. Okay. And some, some people will speak better than others. Um, and that's just the way that is. And so one of the key things, and I talked about this a lot and you mentioned it in reading my bio when I was a senior mentor for NATO for six years, we would always talk to the commanders and their staffs and me personally as an American talking to the other Americans or native English speakers, Canadians and Brits. And now the Brits will say, we're not native English speakers. Right. They're <laughs> the only native English speakers. Right. But, but 
the, to recognize that even if someone can't necessarily explain their idea in English, they've got a good idea. Yeah. And you got to figure out a way to get that out of you. So you got to listen to them. And, and what that a lot of times requires is some of that personal one-on-one time or some of that having a cup of coffee with them or drinking tea or, you know, a beer or a wine or, you know, or just a, let's go take a walk. Um, and so that ability to recognize that not one country has the corner on the market. And so I, I tried to do that so much when I was a NATO commander and I actually had a retired four star call me when I was announced that I was going to go do this. Who said to me, he says, Ralph, you got to be more NATO than NATO. And I thought to myself, General, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> but good thing I used my inner voice. I didn't use my outer voice. I'm like, all right, you're going to be a three star. You got to figure that out. Uh-huh. And what he was talking about was, and I adopted this, that first and foremost, I was a NATO commander who just so happened to be an American. Mm-hmm. If I, I could never be seen as pushing a U.S. agenda, because if I was, then I'd lose the support of the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the approach that I took. Um, and I also took the approach to walk around. You know, we call it, you know, in the, in the military, we have different levels, different types of command. We call it COCOM, you know, combatant command or um, uh, TACON, tactical command, combatant command, you know, and different things like that. Well, I call it handcon. And obviously the people on the podcast can't see my hand shaking, but it's going out and shaking hands and talking to people. Yeah. Um, And, and getting to know them and listening and taking it all in. And yeah, there's a little bit more in that multinational environment of explaining the why we're doing it. Yeah. And, and I never would make a decision by consensus, but I, I had it. I needed to listen, be able to listen to everybody and take in their inputs. And, and I, and I saw that I had people from different countries doing different things when I was the air component commander for the Libya operation, who people would never have thought that they would have been able to do what they did. And they did Mm -hmm. because we empowered them. We trusted them um, and told them, here's what I need you to do. Now go do it and come back with questions. And let's talk about it. So I think hopefully that answers your uh, question. Yeah, yeah, I think I don't mean this as a as an insult in any way, shape, or form. But man, you'd be a good politician because you do remember things, and you do bring people together. So you know, I'm not trying to talk in anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you. Um, many people have said, you know, you should. Uh, I, I was approached a couple of years ago to be on the, our township, you know, council, and I'm like, you know what? Thank you. I'm honored that you would ask but I'm going to make my impact in other ways, you know, volunteering for roots for boots, being in the rotary club. Yeah. Uh, and I could still do it from something like that, but I, uh, I will, I will make my impact in other ways that where I can be involved. Um, and at least, you know, uh, no, no intention to be in politics. Yeah. I don't blame you. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, not to get too political. But, but we are, but we are certainly blessed 
by those veterans that are willing to serve. Yeah. I mean, you look, you look across our country today more and more, and I don't care what side of the aisle they sit on or if yep. they're in the middle, it doesn't make any difference. The fact that they're willing to go out there and go serve because they recognize our country needs their leadership, that to me is uh, inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, that's something I recognize in you. When I, I, the first time I met you personally was at the Keystone Convergence last year, last summer. I'd seen you on uh, the Zoom calls or whatever, but but I was really impressed with your uh, how approachable you are. You know, I think, oh my gosh, a three-star general, and but in, how approachable you are, and you genuinely were interested in what people were saying in every moment. So I, I, I recognize that skill set in you without you describing it just a little while ago. And so anyway, I think you, that's something we could all learn from. You mean you mean he puts his pants on the same way we do every day? I think so. I don't watch him put his pants on. <laughs> did you do the uh, Did you do the overnight ruck? Just curious. Negative tower. Yeah, he's, a, he's a smart man. He's a smart man. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I recognize my limitations. Yeah, oh, negative tower. So that reminds me of Top Gun. Did you uh, yeah, any yeah. flybys where you know <laughs> Sonic booming the tower or whatever happens there? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. On to the next question. <laughs> we, we have an AO. We have an AO that's named Ghost Rider, right? Yeah, yeah. One of our AOs we named off Ghost Rider. Of, off yeah. of the negative Ghost Rider seat right. from. Uh, you, you know what? And we have one of our Snack Town packs, whose name is Ghost Rider, but he's Ghost Rider not from uh, from that movie, but because of um, he he has a motorcycle. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's from the the superhero cartoon thing. By the way, yeah, Ghost, Ghost yeah. Rider was that this morning. Yes, yeah. and and I was there, and I, I don't remember seeing you there this no, morning. No, no, I was saying I, I was not. Yeah, but I, I did run five miles before I came all right, here all tonight. Right. But yeah, I, I was I fart sack this morning for sure. <laughs> you know, I don't want to take us. I'm going to get back to some of the NATO stuff because I think yeah. you wanted to go there. But I, I I did notice that. So in in the family, we've got Red Baron, cool name, right? Yeah, we got Atari, and I think he's referred to as West Coast Atari, right? Because there is an East Coast Atari as well. Mm-hmm. So Atari. You know, as yeah. a kid of the 80s, right? Right. Cool name. And you got Lightyear. Right, right. All right. Very cool. <laughs> what happened to Hello Kitty? I think Hello Kitty was a victim <laughs> of being where he is in the Carpex. Uh, you, you, want, you guys really want to know the answer? Sure. I'd like to hear your version. Right. That'd be good. No, it, it's, uh, and I wasn't there, but this is, this is uh, pretty close to darn true. You know, he, he's a pretty outgoing individual. Um, he gets way more of that from his mom than he does from me, but he's a very outgoing individual. So he shows up and he's, he's EH by Rapido, you know, who is his co-host yep. on a COT podcast. Right. Right. And, and they were in the same fraternity at Appalachian state. Rapido was two years behind him. And, and so was Atari, Atari and Rapido were in the same year. And so, and, and he's Atari because he, um, he does marketing for Xbox one. So there's the right, right, there's okay. the link to Atari, right? And Lightyear is Lightyear because he's in he's in the Space Force. He was in the Air Force. He's in the Space Force now and does space operations. So all well, that makes sense. So so Brian, you know, FNG Brian shows up at the, his first uh, post with Rapido, and uh, he's like, hey, yeah, and and you know my my call sign from flying. Uh, our last name is J O D I C E, and although we pronounce it Jodis. Someone took the J-O-O, J-O-O off the front and I became Dice, right? Yeah. So we got Dice all over the place. So they all were called Dice as they were growing up in, in high school. So he's like, 
He's running, you know, and they're warming up. He's like, yeah, my friends call me Dice. You guys can call me Dice. You know, I, I like Dice. You know, Dice is good. They get, of course, into COT, and and he he couldn't, no matter what he said. It wasn't like, going to be gonna, It was not going to be yeah, Dice. They're like, you're Hello Kitty. And then he goes, I'm going to fix your guys' asses. I got two girls. We got all kinds of Hello Kitty right. stuff. So, anyway. We, we heard the next That's guy, I, we heard the next FNG got the nickname Dice, though. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. I'd, I'd have to yep. ask him that. I'd have to ask him yep. that. So he could have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In in full disclosure, we actually had him as a guest. We've already recorded his episode. So uh, that's how oh, we got. Okay. All right. Yeah. We that, we got some information, you know, from both of you. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Atari supplied some info as well. Yeah. He gave us a little intel last week. That's how we got the whale yeah. story, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> All good. Yeah, that's cool. It's pretty incredible. So last summer, just as an aside, we had a uh, family vacation. We rented a big-ass house in uh, Cherry Grove, South Carolina, which is just on the sort of the northern edge of North Myrtle Beach. In fact, the next beach, you're in, Sa- you're in North Carolina. And we had all of us there. And that was the first time that all four of us posted together. We had posted, you know, two of us together, three yeah. of us together. But that was the first time we had all four of us together at um, Grand Strand at uh, Timeshare uh, was uh, where we all posted out there um, a couple of times. Yeah, once, I guess, all four of us together. So that was pretty cool. That was way cool. Yeah, we had a PAX down there that same week, Porky's. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and he had posted at another AO. And that's what someone's like, oh, man, you missed Hello Kitty and Atari and Lightyear and and uh, and Red Baron. They're, they're all down there. And he, he missed out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they vacation down there in Myrtle a lot. Well, we'd be remiss if we don't ask you about uh, what your opinion is on and what you what your thoughts are on what's going on. Obviously, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Whenever this episode drops, uh, uh, they're still fighting their way to get to Kiev or Kiev. I guess Kiev in Ukrainian, Kiev in Russian. Um, so, what do you think? First, it's it's terrible. It's horrible what uh, Putin's doing to people who did nothing against him. And so the, the killing of innocent civilians is unconscionable and, and needs to be dealt with appropriately, in my, in my view. However, we, we all know that, I mean, he's not a completely loose cannon, but, you know, we know what he did just, I mean, invading Ukraine, what he's done into Crimea and other things around. So there is that uncertainty there. Plus, we know we're dealing with a country that has significant nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. But just because they have nuclear weapons doesn't shouldn't necessarily mean that we don't we whoever the we is do not do something appropriate. I mean, we when we see the devastation and the killing of civilians who haven't done anything mm-hmm. against Russia, uh, that is very disturbing. And does the West? And however we define the West need to get involved in some other way, shape or form besides just military aid or support or sanctions. It, it could very well come down to that, but we can't do it and be afraid that we're going to wind up in a, in a nuclear escalation because it doesn't have to go that, that route. And I think there's got to be ways to be able to solve this, uh, be, be able to, to be able to do that. And I think also we did this in the Cold War. We built the eight-foot Soviet giant 
And I think in the last few years, and I, and I think I was part of that as a NATO senior mentor, I think we started to build another eight foot Russian giant. Mm-hmm. And I think we have seen in their inability to appropriately logistically support their operation mm-hmm. and their, in their lack of ability to have the right levels of command and control. And what I mean by that is they have conscripts, they have officers, they're non, they don't really have a non-commissioned officer corps like we do in the United States and many of our allies do. That, where that is the heart and soul and the backbone of any fighting, of any military force in peacetime or in combat because they have had the technical competence and then after they, as they continue to gain and increase that technical competence, then they start learning leadership skills, leadership skills that are needed at the mid-level to connect the upper levels to the lower levels and you need that mid-level and they don't have that. Um, And so where things are going to, I think could bog down or have problems are going to be in those particular areas. Um, I I think we, we, we can't, we can't have a world order that just says because someone has nuclear weapons, we can't necessarily go back at them. Um, We have to be cognizant of that. We have to recognize it. Um, but we also have to be willing to figure out ways in which we can do more to help the people of Ukraine. Yeah. And they're talking about, um, whenever this podcast airs, they're, they're talking about trying to, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but, uh, start sending planes in, I guess, or something to keep the Russian planes from having complete control of the skies there. So that's a, that's a debate at our discussion or a topic at the moment obviously we haven't right. done that yet um so so that's where we are um mike i have a question in regard to nato and the united states and this whole situation how much uh influence uh leadership like how how much does the united states have in say nato i mean if if the u.s said hey we're going to do this is that something that would, would push a lot of the other NATO countries? I mean, do we have that kind of influence? Te- technically, within the alliance, the alliance works on what's called consensus. And that doesn't mean right now there's 30 members of the NATO alliance. That doesn't mean that all 30 men, that they take a vote and I'll risk doing math in public and, and 16 of the 30 raise their hand and say yes and you go. No, it doesn't work that way. Consensus basically means not saying no. In other words, if the alliance is going to want to do something as the alliance, the political body of the alliance, which is known as the North Atlantic Council, um, has to come to an agreement under what's called silence procedures in which if you as a nation agree, you don't say anything. That's why I say consent or consensus is not saying no. If you say no, you break silence and then you say why you break silence. So now you could have a coalition of the willing that happens, which is what happened with Libya in 2011. It started out as a coalition of the willing where there were NATO countries who came together as a coalition, but they were not acting as the alliance. They were acting as individual countries. That's why you saw, I think it happened today, where you saw the, the leaders of, supposed to be the leaders of the Czech Republic, Slovenia, and Slovakia, all were supposed to go to Kiev to stand there with Zelensky and say, we support you. That's where you could see, you know, a country be, a country be willing to do some other things 
And so if the U.S. was willing to do something like that, I believe it would make that known within the alliance. If other countries wanted to go along, fine. If others didn't, fine. And the U.S. could act on its own, but as the U.S., but not as the alliance. Right. But as soon, but as, soon as, you know, if, if Putin crosses into a NATO country, and we've heard President Biden say this, then that invokes what's called Article 5, Article 5 collective defense, attack against one is considered an attack against all. I call it the three musketeer clause, you know, all for one, one for all. Uh Um, And then that is where the alliance could react as the alliance. Yeah. Yeah, and and it probably gets a little sticky when, I mean, if we wanted to do it, say, on our own, but we have, but we're flying out of bases in Germany or Poland or whatever, it probably gets a little sticky that way. I'm not saying we're going it, to. It's, it's, yeah, it certainly can. Um, where that country says you can't operate out of our country, right? And and we've seen that happen before. Okay. Yeah. Um, in back to 1986, we even saw it in the beginning of that Libya operation before it was a NATO operation, um, where some countries said no, you can't even command and control from inside of our territory. So the commander had to go out in the middle of the Mediterranean in international waters, get 12 miles off the coast to be able to, to do some, but that's what individual countries do. You know, they, they have those views and opinions for whatever various reasons. So, yeah. Do you think that our, um, the way we left Afghanistan emboldened Putin? I think there's a lot of things that we've done since 2014 that has emboldened him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, our, the guys and gals who had to go over there, our military guys and gals, and, and even some of our civilian guys and gals who had to go over to Afghanistan and execute all that did some freaking amazing things. Unbelievable with what they had to deal with. Um, but we certainly didn't send that right message, you know, and the same thing happened in 14 right after the Olympics when Putin went into Crimea. Right. You know, he kind of looked across the world stage and went, mm, okay, all right, here I go. Yeah. And there's another country that begins with a C and ends in an A that's watching really closely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, well, you know, nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, it seems like, seems to me like Putin looked at Ukraine and said, that's a gimme. He probably didn't yeah. think it would be this difficult to beat the Ukrainians, but I think he looked at it and said, that's a gimme because I don't think anybody's going to do anything to help the Ukrainians. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Well, on a lighter note, tell us some tell us some cool stories. I mean, 36 and a half years flying around up there. You got to have some cool stories. Well, uh, you know, when I retired and uh, we had the retirement ceremonies, the ceremony, uh, one of the things I did in there is I listed, I think it was nine, and then maybe I rounded it off to 10 coolest things I got to do in the Air Force. Not sort of the most memorable, but cool, coolest yeah. things, you know. Uh, you know, and one of them uh, was when I uh, did get qualified in the F-15E when I took my mission-ready check ride. The squadron commander handed me, my weapon system officer, another pilot and weapon system officer, airplane tickets, from North Carolina to fly to St. Louis to go to the factory and pick up brand new airplanes, brand new airplanes, uh-huh. That's cool. like 6.7 6. hours on them. I mean, they even smelled new, right? 
you know, and, and here I am signing for this airplane uh, and, and everything else and bring it, you know, bring it back, bringing it back to the base. Uh, that, that was, you know, that, that was pretty cool. Does an airplane have um, the same new, new smell as a new car? Stole my question. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a little different. And if I told you what it really smelled like, I'd have to kill you. And that was, that was so neat. I mean, we got the factory tour. They gave us the hats, you know, the pins, uh, the t-shirts, we, you know, it was, it was just really pretty neat. Well, I mean, the United States government was spending $50 million on our airplane. They better, yeah, well, they better, hat, they you better treat you pretty nice. Yeah. Hats. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, patches, you know, that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, um, so that, that, that was cool. And, uh, you know, and there was a lot of things that were just completely an honor and a privilege. And that is just having that ability to serve with women and men, um, who are, as you guys are talking about on this podcast, our high impact men and high impact women yeah. who every day are willing to uh, put put it on the line. Um, they swear that oath to our constitution. They believe in in that and that ability to be with them, and then that ability and then that honor and privilege to lead in that capacity is very very humbling, very re- rewarding. It's challenging. Um, but when it, when it works and it all comes together, there's pretty much nothing, almost nothing better, you know, um, and, and, in the lines of whatever area of, I'll call that, I'll call it work, but it really wasn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, I'll never get to fly a new airplane. I don't know if I ever get to drive a new car again. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I keep buying used cars, but anyway, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, you talk about working and serving with other high impact individuals, and uh, that's one of the messages we heard from a few of our guests already in these uh, in these episodes of being a part of F three and the confidence that guys have developed because they're with these other men who are encouraging and motivating, and but but they're other high impact men. I mean, Hello Kitty said one of the things he got from F three was being you know encouraged or motivated by other guys that have this passion and stuff like that and it just emboldens you and you get more confidence and um and your ability to lead um i think that's that's one of the things that i i didn't really you know when i first started doing this i thought i i really understood a lot of kind of the concepts and how this is going to work to invigorate male community leadership um but one of the things i i didn't i didn't appreciate as much is how much confidence guys gain by doing this, yeah, you know, not just by doing something hard and getting through it, but doing with other guys. And, uh, we talked to a number of guys who, who gained that confidence, uh, just by being part of this group, you know, part of a, a packs of men out there in the gloom, slogging through the mud and the snow and the ice and the rain and everything else. And, uh, opportunities to lead workouts when it's something they'd yeah. have never done before. They've never led a group of men yeah that's a good question so i in the air force do you guys do exercise and cadence and all that stuff or was this kind of new to you this was uh in all honesty this was new um you know when i first started we had physical fitness requirements that were very loosely enforced and then you know once we started deploying in the early 90s the air force kind of realized we need to get up on the step the same step that the army and the marine corps has been on you know for decades 
And so, um, and, and we would have sort of group PT sessions, but I, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I've said this before some other places, I was nervous to do my first <laughs> cue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Kitty was leaning on me a couple times. Come on, come on, dad, you got a cue. You need to cue. I'm like, no, eh, you know, and I co-cued with him one Thanksgiving down there. And, and, and it was, it was, I guess it was part of that, but of course it was something different. Um, and that, now I don't shy away from it, obviously, because, you know, you get, it's like you said, you gain that confidence, right? You know, we teach you. So, you know, many people's like, holy shit, you did all this stuff and you let all these people, <laughs> and you're nervous about cueing it. I'm like, like, yeah, I got to call Cadence. And, and, and if I don't do this right, these guys are going to give me the biggest ration of shit I've ever, I've ever heard. That's yeah. right. This is great because, you know, like, you know, we're, we're trying to get these guys to do their virgin cues. Right. And we could be like, it's okay. The NATO commander was nervous, too. That's it's right. right. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it, tell them that. I mean, that's absolutely fine because I, I was. And uh, and sure, you know, like everybody else, I've made mistakes and I still make some. But, you know, I cued last Saturday and, and now, but it is. It, because it's something that's different for us and it's a different environment. Um, but as we all have learned, if, if you can do that in an F3 setting, in that situation, whether it's you're sleep deprived or it's snowing or it's raining or it's freaking 98% humidity um, and guys are mumble chattering like crazy, <laughs> and you get a successful workout and everybody comes around and goes, Hey Q, great job. Well yeah. done. You know, shit hot. Uh, uh, that builds that confidence that now you, you carry that back to your family. You carry that back to your place of work. You carry that to your place of worship. Um, you carry that with you throughout the day, just saying hi to somebody in the freaking grocery store. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was shocked. I, I, I mentioned this before, but I was shocked at how difficult leading exercises and cadence were for guys to step up and do that. I, it came easy for me because I guess, you know, I did it in boot camp. That was a long time ago, but you know, you remember those things when you go through boot camp. but, um, but then, you know, coaching sports teams for a long time and different things like that, coming up with a training session and leading a training session was not new to me. And the exercise and cadence sort of came naturally to me. Um, Having to do the workout while I lead the workout, <laughs> that was new to me. But and breathe. And breathe, yeah. Um, so that was interesting. But I was, I was, I was just surprised at how many guys uh, kind of struggle with that. Yeah. And guys, guys I wouldn't predict that would struggle with that. So uh, it's kind of neat to see. One of the things that we do um, is at the end of the beatdown during our circle of trust, we'll have a f- feedback for the cue. So it's a formal time you know, guys can give, give the, the cue feedback. You know, this is what you did well. Here's what I would change, you know, that kind of stuff. Because uh, immediate feedback, I think, is better than, you know, down the road. And if we don't do it, then we probably wouldn't do it at all. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, it's just been interesting to see. And the confidence level, guys, just rising, you know. And uh, guys that were, I wouldn't, I guess the word is meek. Yeah. You know, kind of introverted and kind of stuff. And you see them come out of their shell and, you know, start commanding men. It's really cool. Really cool to see. It, it, it is. We, you know, I, I've seen that in, in so many of our packs here uh, that that do this. And like, you know, for example, I'll, I'll call them out, Paperboy. You know, a couple uh, after the last uh, Keystone Convergence call, you know, getting ready for our convergence here in June. Um, I, you know, I, and I said, hey, Snacktown, we'll, we'll take one of the cues. 
Mm-hmm. And so I told everybody, I said, we, we have it. And, uh, about three days later, Paperboy emailed me and said, Hey, uh, Red Baron, I got some ideas, you know, on, on how we want, on how to, on how to do this. And, you know, when he cues for us, his cues are so well thought out. He's got a theme. I mean, he, you know, he, we're, we're moving, we're doing stuff and, you know, you don't feel completely wiped out when you're done, but you know, you accomplish something and he puts, puts a lot of thought and effort into it. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate him coming forward and saying, yeah, I've got this idea and here's what I'm, here's what I'm thinking. So you're right to see uh, our packs do that and have that confidence. It, it's inspiring for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So what's, what's your favorite way to beat the packs down on a, on a gloomy morning? So my favorite that I've done now with, all three of the 2.0s now at uh, at their locations um, and at a couple others is it's this uh, after Warmerama um, and, and I can fit it in 45 minutes, but I mean, we're moving. It's uh, you start out with the is 10 rounds. The first round is one exercise. Second round is two exercises, three all the way up to 10. And then it's the first one is five reps. Then it's five reps, 10 reps. Then it's five, 10, 15. And then you always start with burpees. So you always get five burpees first. Yep. Um, and, and at the, and you know, uh, and if I have a full hour, then in between we're doing some good distance running. If it's 45 minutes, it's not as much running, but, um, and then I finish it up with uh, 50, no surrenders. Oh, I hate those things. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's now, a, now 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 what I do is I is it's ten stepping back with the right, ten stepping back with the left, ten with the right, ten with the left, five with the right, five with the left. But anyway, yeah. it's a that's a that's a good beat down. Yeah, it really, yeah and, I, and, just, and the exercises in between, you can pretty much do whatever you know. Uh, but I've got this, yeah, kind of like works your, pretty well. Kind of like your accumulator. Yeah, yeah, I've I've pulled out a neck uh, a beat down called the accumulator. It's similar to that. So basically, uh-huh. you know, you, you can vary the, the amount of the, the amount of reps, but they accumulate. So, you know, you do 10 reps of something and then you run, you know, however far, and then you do 10 reps of that same thing. And then 20 reps of the next thing is, yeah, I call that the accumulator. So yeah, that's yeah. Good. I could tell you what this guy, I mean, Red Baron, you're, you're double respect category, right? Yeah. I just turned 67 on March the 10th. Dang. Yeah, I'm 55, and he was he was making me look bad in the Keystone Convergence last year when we got down on the soccer no. field doing those bear crawls and burpees. <laughs> so he could still go, man, I'll tell you. So I, I have one more last question. Do you have any Thanks. questions left for him? No, I think I'm good. Go ahead. All right, my question is this. Well, actually, it's not a question. I'm going to ask you to do something. So um, I asked this of just about everybody. If you – this is your chance to tell – the men of America, however many of them are listening to, listening to this, what would you, what message would you have for the men of America? What advice, what message, what would you say? I would say to the men of America, we have an incredible opportunity right now to set an example for those that are our peers for those that are looking up to us and for those that we're looking up to. And we can do that one um, by simply being ourselves, but being a good version of ourselves. 
by being that virtuous leader, um, by setting the example. You know, we talk about an F3 by getting right, living right, leading right, leaving right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I firmly believe, and I use this a lot in my time in NATO, and I talk about it all the time, and that's doing the right thing, doing the right thing right, doing the right things right for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And it, it's... It's a simple saying, but at times it's really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk about that, you know, take that to a teenager who's facing peer pressures in so many different ways, shapes and forms, or someone in college who's facing peer pressures or someone in a job, new job, uh, who's maybe being tempted to not have integrity, you know, and doing the right thing, doing the right things right, doing the right things right for the right reasons it really falls back on that. So I would say to the men of the, of America, do the right thing, do the right things, right. Do the right things, right. For the right reasons. And you'll be successful and you'll set an example and we will grow a generation to follow us that will continue to do great things. Yeah. Thank you. Great message. So all you young men out there, um, the beginning of this, he talked about his, uh, his perseverance and and uh, trying to become a fighter pilot, and it didn't come easy. It didn't happen right away, but he kept at it, right. And thirty six and a half years later, as a three star general, right, mm-hmm. raising a great family, and and here he is. So I think we have ourselves a high impact man here. Absolutely, leaving a great legacy to his family for sure. Yeah, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's certainly an honor and a privilege to have you. Um, same goes for me. Guys, um, I'm honored, and thanks for asking me to do this. And uh, thanks for what you're doing and getting this these messages out, because it is about inspiring men um, and women. I don't, Judy and I, Yam and I, listen to many of these podcasts in the car when we're driving, right? Um, and she's also inspired by that too, because uh, we we need we need to do that. We need to set that example, and it all starts in our local communities. Yeah. Um, it, it starts here and it's, and when I say it in our community, it starts at home. It starts in our homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. All right. God bless you. God bless you guys too. See you at the Keystone Convergence. You bet. Yeah, man. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it. All right. Out here. <laughs> Out here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I would like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their story of becoming a high-impact man. More information and resources can be found at highimpactman.com. If you like this podcast, please consider following us on our social media pages or email us at him at highimpactman.com. That is H-I-M at highimpactman.com. The High Impact Man podcast has a new episode every week. And you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast platforms. Have a great week, everyone.